Section six of Anton Chekhov and other essays. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anton Chekhov and other essays by Lev Shestov, translated by John Middleton Murray and Samuel Kotelyansky. Section six penultimate words part one de omnibus debutantum etc one de omnibus dubitandum there are but few orthodox hegelians left among philosophers nowadays yet hegel is still supreme over the minds of our contemporaries it may even be that certain of his ideas have taken deeper root nowadays than when hegelianism was in full bloom for instance the conception that history is the unfolding of the idea in reality or to put it more briefly and in terms more familiar to the modern mind the idea of progress try to convince an educated person of the contrary you are sure to be worsted but de omnibus dubitantum which means in other words that doubt is called upon to fulfil its mission above all in those cases where a conviction is particularly strong and unshakable therefore one must admit whether he will or no that progress so called the development of mankind in time is a fiction we have wireless telegraphy radium and the rest yet we stand no higher than the romans or the greeks of old you admit this then one step further although we have wireless telegraphy and all the other blessings of civilization still we stand no higher than red or black-skinned savages you protest but the principle compels you began to doubt then what is the use of drawing back for myself i must confess that the idea of the spiritual perfection of savages entered my mind but lately when for the first time for many years i looked through the works of tyler lubbock and spencer they speak with such certainty of the advantages of our spiritual organization and have such sincere contempt for the moral misery of the savage that in spite of myself stolen the thought is it not exactly here where all are so certain that no one ever examines the question that the source of error is to be found high time to recall descartes and his rule and as soon as i began to doubt all my former certainty of course i fully shared the opinion of the english anthropologists disappeared in a moment it began to appear that the savage indeed is higher and more important than our savants and not our materialists only as professor paulson thinks but our idealists metaphysicians mystics and even our convinced missionaries sincere believers not the profit-mongering sort whom europe sends forth into the world to enlighten the backward brethren it seems to me that the credit transactions common among savages with a promise to pay in the world beyond the grave have a deep meaning and human sacrifices 
in them spencer sees a barbarity as an educated european should i also see in them barbarity because i also am a european and have a scientific education but i deeply envy their barbarity and curse the cultivation which has herded me together with believing missionaries idealist materialist and positivist philosophers into the narrow fold of the sultry and disgusting apprehensible world we may write books to prove the immortality of the soul but our wives won't follow us to the other world they will prefer to endure the widow's lot here on the earth our morality based on religion forbids us to hurry into eternity and so in everything we are guessing at the best we are sicklied with dreams but our life passes outside our guesses and our dreams one man still accepts the rights of the church however strange they may be and seriously imagines that he is brought into contact with other worlds beyond the rights no step is taken kant died when he was eighty had it not been for cholera hegel would have lived a hundred years while the savages the young ones kill the old and i dare not complete the sentence for fear of offending sensitive ears again i recall descartes and his rule who is right the savages or we and if the savages are right can history be the unfolding of the idea and is not the conception of progress in time that is the development from the past to the present and to the future the purest error perhaps and most probably there is development but the direction of this development is in a line perpendicular to the line of time the base of the perpendicular may be any human personality may god and the reader forgive one the obscurity of the last words i hope the clarity of the foregoing exposition will to some extent atone for it two self-renunciation and megalomania we are obliged to think that nothing certain can be said either of self-renunciation or of megalomania though each one of us in his own experience knows something of the former as well as of the latter but it is well known that the impossibility of solving a question never yet kept people from reflecting on the contrary to us the most alluring questions are those to which there is no actual no universally valid answer i hope that sooner or later philosophy will be thus defined in contrast to science philosophy is the teaching of truths which are binding on none thereby the accusation so often made against philosophy will be removed that philosophy properly consists of a series of mutually exclusive opinions this is true but she must be praised for it not blamed there is nothing bad in it but good a very great deal of good on the other hand it is bad extremely bad that science should consist of truths universally binding for every obligation is a constraint temporarily one can submit to a restraint put on a corset fetters one can agree to anything temporarily 
but who will voluntarily admit the mastery over himself of an eternal law even from the quiet and clear spinoza i sometimes hear a deep sigh and i think that he is longing for freedom he who wasted all his life all his genius in the glorification of necessity with such an introduction one may say what he pleases it seems to me that self-renunciation and megalomania however little they resemble one another apparently may be observed successively even simultaneously in one and the same person the ascetic who has denied life and humbles himself before everybody and the madman like nietzsche or dostoevsky who affirms that he is the light the salt of the earth the first in the whole world or even the whole universe both reach their madness i hope there is no necessity to demonstrate that self-renunciation as well as megalomania is a kind of madness under conditions for the most part identical the world does not satisfy the man and he begins to seek for a better all serious seeking brings a man to lonely paths and lonely paths it is well known end in a great wall which sets a fatal bound to man's curiosity then arises the question how shall a man pass beyond the wall by overcoming either the law of impenetrability or the equally invincible law of gravity in other words how shall a man become infinitely small or infinitely great the first way is that of self-renunciation i want nothing i myself am nothing i am infinitely small and therefore i can pass through the infinitely small pores of the wall the other way is megalomania i am infinitely strong infinitely great i can do all things i can shatter the wall i can step over it though it be higher than all the mountains of the earth and though it has hitherto dismayed the strongest and the bravest this is probably the origin of the two most mysterious and mighty spiritual transformations there is no single religion upon which are not more or less clearly impressed the traces of these methods of man's struggle with the poverty of his powers in ascetic religions the tendency to self-renunciation predominates buddhism glorifies the suppression of the individual and has for its ideal nirvana the greeks dreamed of titans and heroes the jews consider themselves the chosen people and await the messiah as for the gospel it is hard to say to which method of struggle it gives the preference on the one hand are the great miracles the raising of the dead the healing of the sick the power over the winds and the sea on the other blessed are the poor in spirit the son of god who will sit on the right hand of power now lives in the company of publicans beggars and harlots and serves them who is not for us is against us the promise to thrust down his enemies into the fiery hell eternal torment for blasphemy against the holy spirit and equal with these the exhortation to the extreme of humility and love to the enemy turn to him the other cheek also 
throughout the gospel is permeated with contradictions which are not extraneous and historical concerned with facts but intrinsic contradictions of mood of ideals as the modern man would say what is in one chapter praised as the noblest task is in the next degraded to an unworthy labor it is in no way strange that the most opposite teachings should find justification in this little book which is half composed of repetitions the inquisitors the jesuits and the old ascetics called themselves christians so do the modern protestants and our russian sectaries to a greater or less degree they are all right even the protestants such contradictory elements are intertwined in the gospel that men above all those who travel the high road who can move in one direction only and under one conspicuous flag who have become accustomed to believe in the unity of reason and the infallibility of logical laws could never fully grasp the teaching of the gospel and always aspired to give to the words and deeds of christ a uniform explanation which should exclude contradictions and more or less correspond to the common conceptions of the work and problems of life they read in the mysterious book have faith and thou shalt say to this mountain be thou removed and understand it to mean that always every hour and every minute one must think and desire the self-same thing prescribed beforehand and fully defined whereas in these words the gospel allowed and commends the maddest and most perilous experiments that which is did not exist for christ and only that existed which is not the old roman pilate who was apparently an educated man clever and not bad at heart though weak in character could neither understand nor elucidate the cause of the strange struggle which took place before him with his whole heart he pitied the pale jew before him who is guilty of nothing what is truth he asked christ christ did not answer him nor could he answer not through ignorance as the heathen desired to believe but because that question cannot be answered in words it would have been necessary to take pilate's head and turn it towards the other side in order that he might see what he had never seen before or still better to have used the method to which the hunchbacked pony turns in the fairy tale in order to change sleepy ivanushka into a wizard and a beauty first to plunge him into a cauldron of boiling milk then into another of boiling water then a third of ice-cold water there is every reason to suppose that with this preliminary preparation pilate would have begun to act differently and i think the hunchbacked pony would agree that self-renunciation and megalomania would be a fair substitute for the cauldrons of the tale great privileges and great illusions so change the nature of man that things which seemed before impossible become possible and the unattainable attainable three eternal truths in the memorabilia 
xenophon tells of the meeting of socrates with the famous sophist hippias when hippias came to socrates the latter as usual held forth and as usual asked why it is that men who wish to learn carpentry or smith's work know to whom they should apply but if they desire to learn virtue cannot possibly find a teacher hippias who had heard these opinions of socrates many times before remarked ironically so you're still saying the same old things that i heard from you years ago socrates understood and accepted the challenge as he always accepted challenges of this kind a dispute began by which it was demonstrated as usual in plato and xenophon that socrates was a stronger dialectician than his opponent he succeeded in showing that his conception of justice was based on the same firm foundation as all his other conceptions and that convictions once formed if they are true are as little liable to the action of time as noble metals to rust socrates lived seventy years he was once a youth once a man once a greybeard but what if he had lived a hundred and forty years experienced once again all the three seasons of life and had again met hippias or better still if the soul as socrates taught is immortal and socrates now lives somewhere in the moon or sirius or in any other place predestined for immortal souls does he really go on plaguing his companions with discourses on justice carpenters and smiths and does he still emerge victorious as of old from the dispute with hippias and other persons who dare to affirm that everything human convictions included may be and ought to be subject to the laws of time and that mankind not only loses nothing but gains much by such subjugation four earth and heaven the word justice is on all men's lips but do men indeed so highly prize justice as one would think who believed all that has been said and is still being said concerning it more than this is it so highly appreciated by its sworn advocates and panegyrists poets philosophers moralists theologians even by the best of them the most sincere and gifted i doubt it i doubt it deeply glance at the works of any wise man whether of the modern or the ancient world justice if we understand it as the equality of all living men before the laws of creation and how else can we understand it never occupied any one's attention plato never once asked destiny why she created thersites contemptible and patroclus noble plato argues that men should be just but never once dares to arraign the gods for their injustice if we listen to his discourses a suspicion will steal into our souls that justice is a virtue for mortals while the immortals have virtues of their own which have nothing in common with justice and here is the last trial of earthly virtue we do not know whether the human soul is mortal or immortal some we know believe in immortality others laugh at the belief 
if it were proved that they were both in the wrong and that men's destinies after death are as unequal as they are in life the successful the chosen take up their abode in heaven the others remain to rot in the grave and perish with their mortal clay it is true that such an admission is made by our russian prophet the priest of love and justice dostoevsky in his legend of the grand inquisitor now if it should turn out that dostoevsky is really immortal while his innumerable disciples and admirers the huge mass of grey humanity which is spoken of in the grand inquisitor end their lives in death as they began them with birth would dostoevsky himself whom i have named deliberately as the most passionate defender of the ideal of justice though there have been yet more fervent and passionate and remarkable defenders of justice on earth whom i ought perhaps to name were it not that i would avoid speaking lightly of sacred things let him who finds dostoevsky small himself choose another would dostoevsky reconcile himself to such an injustice would he rise in revolt beyond the grave against the injustice or would he forget his pure brethren when he occupied the place prepared for him it is hard to judge a priori a posteriori one would imagine that he would forget and between dostoevsky and a small provincial author the gulf is colossal the injustice of the inequality cries out to heaven nevertheless we take no heed we live on and do not cry or if we do we cry very rarely and then to tell the truth it is hard to say certainly why we cry is it because we would draw the attention of the indifferent heathen or is it because there are many amateurs of lamentation among our neighbors like the pilgrim woman in ostovsky's storm who passionately loved to hear a good howl all these considerations will seem particularly important to those who like myself at the present moment i cannot speak for tomorrow share dostoevsky's notion that even if there is immortality then it is certainly not for everybody but for the few moreover i follow dostoevsky further and admit that they alone will rise from the dead who on the existing hypothesis should expect the worst fate after death the first here will be the first still there while the last not even a memory will remain and no one will be found to champion those who have perished a dostoevsky a tolstoy and all the other first who succeed in entering heaven will be engaged in business incomparably more important so continue if you will to take thought for the just arrangement of the world and after the fashion of plato to make the teaching of justice the foundation of philosophy End of section 6